0: You've seen many pastors fall from ministry. Uh, What are the most common threats to pastors uh,
1: today? Yeah, that's true. I've seen many and some are even close friends. And I would say the number one cause is isolation. And with the isolation, there is an insular aspect where they don't have friends. So whether they are forced to or they choose to be isolated, I think all of that contributes to their fall from grace. And a lot of that could have been avoided in my opinion. A lot of it could have been structurally made or if there was more time allowed for them to have relationships and friendships, then perhaps they would have uh, not fallen. But uh, in the busy hustle and bustle of ministry, unfortunately their soul and their safety is the last thing that is cared for.
0: So how can you then project when a leader will be okay in the long run or the danger of falling. So you talked about friendships. Um, like what does that look like practically?
1: Yeah, so in my classes at Talbot, which are the pastoral ministry classes, I actually have a project that they have to do all semester called the Friendship Project. And it's with fellow students in the class, and I ask them to do three things. Eat together, study together, and do something fun together. Now, a number of the people are like, great. That's a great project. I'm happy to do that. And others are like, I don't want to do that. That's a predictor for me that tells me, hmm, why not? Now the age old answer is I'm an introvert, but introverts need friends too. And perhaps even more so. And so what I would really want to help people understand is people can be a hindrance at times, but more than anything, they're a help. And so I'm trying to get people to understand the value. I mean, we as pastors, we tell our congregants, you should have accountability, you should be in community. But wait a second, if they're not doing Mm -hmm. that, then that's called hypocrisy. So you've got to practice what you preach, otherwise it's just vain words.
0: So what are some of the friendship practices that you have found to be helpful to you?
1: Well, one of the things I love to do is eat. (laughs) So I'll invite people or I'll say, hey, let's meet at a certain place. And and let's just, you know, again, I'm known to have a sweet tooth or sweet mouth. Sorry. And so because of that, I'll say, hey, let's meet at a donut shop, you know, and we'll just sit and we'll talk for hours over donuts and coffee and just catch up. I'm a phone person because I'm an old school person. So I'll just call up people during the pandemic. I would call two or three pastors every week just to say, hey, no agenda. How are you doing? Just checking in with you. Anything I could pray for you for. And I wanted to just befriend them. And so as an older person, sometimes people will feel hesitant because of the whole Asian hierarchy to call me or they'll think, oh, he's so busy. But look, this is an important priority for me because it's not only something I enjoy, but it's a benefit for myself. So I will always initiate it, and I'll say, hey, call me anytime you want. Text me. Let me know what's going on. And to my uh, surprise and also joy, they actually do it. So there's been a lot of good relationships and friendships that I've enjoyed and benefited from, which I've hopefully modeled both to my students and to my colleagues in ministry.
0: So do you also then have, I would say, like layers or like circles of intimacy with certain pastors? Like how do you... How do you, like, I'm sure just having, you know, 20 pastors that you call once a year isn't the same. Like, how would you help tell pastors to kind of balance the intimate friendships versus, you know, these, you know, beautiful other friendships that you yeah. might have?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, we have to take our cues from Jesus. You know, he went to the masses, and we do that on Sundays, perhaps. And then he did the 12, and then he had the inner circle. So I have, like, two or three really close friends that I feel like I can share unfiltered things. They are pastors as well, but and one my best man is not a pastor, but a very committed church member. And we'll just get together and we ask each other questions. How's your family? How's your marriage? How's your thought life? How's your spending? You know? How's your health? Those kinds of questions. So I do have two or three friends that I frequently get together with or we talk to each other on the phone. And that's just a real joy to have.
2: Um, kind of the allure of being a pastor, especially in America, as this position of prestige that leads to isolation, how would you say that has shifted for the Asian American church in the last, you know, few years?
1: I think we are trying to break out of the mold of this minority, model minority, and I understand that. We don't like to be known as that. But I think it's gone too far where sometimes we have uh, gone the other extreme where we become entitled. And, you know, depending on where you come from, especially in other countries like Korea, like a pastor's king, which from my reading of scripture, kings are the Old Testament. We don't have to do that anymore. So um, I I think there's maybe an unhealthy hierarchy there. And I think that... uh, whether it be older or younger people, we we sometimes take advantage of the honor and privilege we have here to a detriment. It becomes dangerous. And this goes back to what my first concern was about isolation. I've studied all the different mega pastors and apologists who have recently fallen. And uh, basically the threat and the MO is the same. They have isolation, they have no accountability. Bottom line, they have no friends. And so with the power, power corrupts and corrupts thoroughly, then they just go buck crazy and they do anything and everything they want and they take shortcuts and they take privileges that they shouldn't have and no one could say anything. In an Asian culture where you don't question older people boy, you can get away with murder. And so I am very opposed to that. And I try as the head older guy to flatten everything in an egalitarian way so that I am not above accountability. So for example, on our leadership team, I will never make a decision singularly, especially if it's financial. So all four of us on our leadership team, and we have different generations. I'm in my late 50s, my associate is in his 40s, my treasurer is in his 30s, and my college worship guy is in his late 20s. We all have to sign off on something so that there's no surprises. And that way we have accountability. I chose to do it that way. I could have said, well, I'm just going to make the decision. But then that leads into a downward spiral. So... I just don't want to be caught in that situation and I, I want to be above reproach as best as possible. Um,
2: during COVID, right. Because we just couldn't see people anymore. uh, I know a lot of people kind of went through friendship crises, right? How do you see COVID and you know, the aftermath of COVID, how do you see these conversations around friendship and intimacy evolving and changing?
1: Yeah. I think what's starting to happen now, especially at our church, is that the absence of relationship and friendship is something that people missed. So now people are starting to come back to church. And when they stand in the service and are singing corporately, which is something we didn't do online, they go, wow, I missed that for two and a half years. And so our Easter service, which we just had a few weeks ago, we had numbers that were uh, equal to our high numbers prior to COVID and I was just so happy. I was praying for that, that we would have a specific number and, and for specific people who we haven't seen for two and a half years, they came back on Easter. So what I think is happening slowly is people are starting to engage again and they're craving relationship. And I think that is something that I've been praying for for myself, for other people, and we're starting to see it in the in the context of the church, and other places as well. So I, I just pray that that will continue and even excel beyond what it was prior to COVID.
2: Um, you know, I, you mentioned researching all these high profile pastors' fall, which is something we've been doing a lot too. Um, how do you how do you counsel, especially younger pastors who looked up to these people? Right and who were you know traumatized by this? How do they? How have you been helping them process these high-profile falls?
1: Yeah, the big one, and this is publicly known, is Robbie Zacharias, uh, an apologist, an incredible speaker, author of multiple books. I actually had people in my congregation who looked up to Robbie very highly, including myself, come to me and saying, "What do I do? The guy fell from grace." He didn't seem to repent. He was guilty of all these atrocities. And I said, as sad as it is at his life, what he actually said was true. And it's true because propositionally, it's true apart from the person. Even Satan can say true things, even though he's the adversary. And so the other thing I would say is there are other godly, credible people who say the same things. William Wayne Craig, Gary Habermas, J.P. Moreland, who I would point to as more positive role models who have said the same things that Ravi has said, but they have not been disqualified. So I, I would try to restore their hope in the truth of what they're saying, even though the credibility of their character is pretty much disqualified.
2: Um... For those who are involved in churches that have scandals that we don't hear about, right? Because, you know, with Robbie, it was like it was public and it was global. But, you know, scandals are happening in local churches all the time. How do you kind of help to help those people process?
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I guess I get to do by virtue of being at the seminary is uh, as soon as something like that happens where a church leader falls from a church, and especially in the Asian context, I get the call. I think my number is somewhere, 1-800-BEN-SHIN. You know, you've had a scandal, just give me a call. And at first I'm like, why is everyone calling me? But I've realized in the providence of God, because I've seen so many of those situations and I have the experience, and I think I have a pastor's heart, God is now using that so that I embrace that as an opportunity to minister. So the first thing I do is I find out what the damage was. I'll go in and assess the situation and usually the best thing to do is I'll bring a guy or I myself will come in and nurture the hurts because they don't need another person. usually it's a person who's a really strong catalytic leader. He's a great preacher and so forth. They don't need that guy to be the follow-up guy. They need a person who's going to sit nurture them, listen to their hurts, cry with them, empathize and minister to them, they need a shepherd. So in a number of situations that I've worked with, I bring in guys who I know are available, who are shepherds, I I will also help set up pulpit supplies so that they will have someone to preach for them and then try to get them through a long-term process of recovery and hopefully restoration. But it's, it's not easy, it's not for the faint of heart but it's something that unfortunately is necessary and I guess God called me to do that.
2: Um, I, when I was pastoring, I think I tended to fall on the other extreme. I was like so afraid of doing something wrong and I think like certain things like, you know, we talk about the Billy Graham rule, where you're so afraid that it actually kind of cripples you from doing ministry. How do you counsel pastors that maybe fall on that side of the extreme to be more healthy?
1: Yeah, yeah, well for me it's about rhythms of life and the rhythm of life that I really encourage people to do is have relationships with people. So let me give you a couple examples of that. So I am a scheduled person and I'm very predictable. Uh, I like to go to the same restaurants, sit in the same seat and order the same food. So if the waiter sees me, They'll say, oh, the Dr. Pepper, you want the number two? So said, yes, it, oh, exactly. I have a, a baker near our house. I walk in, as soon as he walks in, he knows I want a blueberry muffin. He pulls it out, he puts it in the bag, he hands it to me. I give my $2.50. Okay, have a nice day, we'll see you late. So I'm predictable. That's a good thing because then if I ever come out of sequence, then people go, well, what's going on here? So I share that with my wife. She knows my rhythm. My kids know my rhythm. Everyone knows my schedule. Everyone knows where I am. And I'm okay with that. I don't feel like that's routine. I think it's rhythm. It's healthy. So I don't live in fear and I don't have regret. I think those are two things that I'm trying to avoid by just doing the right things by being in rhythm. And so there are cautionary things. And let me just say this. I'm a very cautious person. I want to be very safe. And so, uh, I know, you know, these days people don't like the Billy Graham rule. But I think that's just wise for a a lot of people because, although I know that it feels like women are being objectified or sexualized, I get that. But I also know guys, they struggle with this. So, I will actually tell my students in the classes, probably don't ride with youth, especially if they're the opposite sex. Uh, don't ride in a car with the female, just be wise. And all I say is bring other people with you so that you have accountability. So those are kinds of things that I think, I tell people don't be smart, be wise. Because there are a lot of smart sinners who know how to get around the system. Be wise means that we take knowledge and we integrate it into right living. So that, that's what wisdom is, is knowledge applied. And so if we can do it that way, man, I, I think that shouldn't be crippling. It should be freeing because I know what my rhythm is and I'm in sync. Oh, yeah.
0: So uh, yeah, the last thing I always ask, so the last thing I always ask is, is there anything uh, about the subject um, that we've talked about that I didn't ask you want to you know add to the conversation? Um, it could be yes, it could be no.
1: Oh, yes, I, I could talk about this a lot I mean this is what I do in my classes at Talbot I'm trying to safe proof pastors for the future because I know what has happened in the past and so between what I've seen and what I've experienced I try to give the heads up I will share all the scary stories so that they can turn back after seminary in case they say ah this is not I'm not cut out for this or they're better prepared for it so I always want to be proactive Not be reactive. So the last thing I would say is this. You've got to have healthy relationships. I've said this time and time again. Relationship with God, including your family, that's got to be the most important relationships. You've got to have friends, people who are not just pastors, but people that you can just talk to and shoot the breeze with. And finally, then colleagues in ministry who are doing what you're doing. That last part, I'm so thankful. I have my colleagues at Talbot. I have a slew of pastors that I would call friends. That's life-giving for me. I worry, and I say, woe is the person who's by themselves. They're isolated, and they have a target on their back. Satan's saying, this guy. I'm going to go for this guy. So that's what I would say.